Welcome to Knowing Nature. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about their experiences, their practices, and their perspectives on helping people to reconnect with the natural world. This is a film club episode where I'm joined by Rosie and Christina to talk about the Netflix documentary Seaspiracy. Welcome back to the show, Rosie and Christina. Hi, Victor. Hi, Victor. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having us back. It's, I'm really excited to be here and with yeah. Rosie as well. Yeah. Always a pleasure to have you both on. Um, so today we're talking about Seaspiracy. So this is a documentary uh, was released in March of 2021. Uh, and it's achieved quite a bit of um, media reaction, I think is fair to say. It was directed by Ali Tabrizi, who's also sort of our, our main protagonist in the documentary. And we follow his journey, wanting to make a documentary about the oceans and the seas. And then he discovers all of the environmental problems that these wonderful habitats are facing. And then we follow him on his journey as he discovers more and more issues that the oceans face, finally coming to the conclusion that the biggest problem facing the oceans is commercial fisheries. And uh, he presents his solution, which is basically to stop eating fish. So there, there's our overview of the film. So I'm, I'm curious to see what your reactions are, because there's been quite a lot of media coverage of this. I think every environmental podcast and other media outlet has kind of covered it with very uh, mixed reactions, shall we say. What did you think of, of the film? So first of all, I really didn't want to watch it when you when you suggested doing this podcast. I was like, ah, um, and, and that's because not necessarily because of the media coverage and all of the kind of controversy, more because I knew it would be really harrowing. I knew there'd be a lot of like quite distressing images and figures and facts, but I think it's, it's really good to kind of face up to that kind of thing. I, I didn't want to bury my head in the sand too much. Um, and I did watch it and I didn't, I can't say I enjoyed it. There was definitely, I, I, I don't like seeing a lot of those kind of quite harrowing scenes but it gave me a lot of um, food for thought, as it were. And I actually refrained from reading any of like the hubbub around it until after I watched it to see if my sort of thoughts might tally up with those um, others that have been published without kind of bias. Um, and I thought that it did some things actually quite well. I don't know enough of the science to be as critical about some of those figures. But um, um, so... I can't say I enjoyed it, but I think it was important I watched it. Definitely, definitely. And um, today, just for, for the context, I think we can, we'll probably end up talking a little bit about some of the science, but there's loads of other programs uh, out there, other people who've interviewed marine biologists and ecologists and conservationists um, about their reaction to it. So this podcast episode today is not quite going to be approaching it from that angle. We're going to look at it from from what we have our background in. So it, from the education perspective and the communications perspective. But yeah, so Christina, what, what were your first thoughts about it? Well, first, I'd like to address the elephant in the room, the fact that they call it seaspiracy and not conspiracy, which I think is important to mention. But uh, now, aside from that, I, I was a bit like um, Rosie. I felt a bit like um, I didn't want to see it. I felt that it was going to tell me things that I already knew and it was going to make me feel bad about everything as, as this kind of like um documentaries do um and also yeah again I knew that there were some images that could be quite um impactful 
So yeah, I was putting it off. I knew that it was there. I needed to watch it. So this was a good excuse to to do it. Um, I also had read a little bit about, not read, but like read some tweets about it. And I was like, well, do I need to watch this? Is this going to tell me something new? So, but yeah, no, I'm glad that I watch it. Um, because it did, it made me think, it made me reflect about what's happening and most importantly how should we address it and how can you actually reach people about these topics um because as I said before yeah I was thinking oh it's going to tell me things that I already know but it's more about yeah okay so if we already know this why this is not changing so yeah no I'm glad that I watch it as well and I'm really looking forward to exchange uh, those reflections with you guys I think I had very much the same um, reaction as, as both of you I saw I first was aware of Seaspiracy as it was kind of popping up on on Twitter and in people's comments about it. And somehow, I think because I got into the um, How It Pants uh, hashtag on Twitter, and that, at least what I've been seeing of that was um, shark scientists drawing various sharks and, and or other marine creatures and trying to figure out if it were pants, how would it wear pants or trousers? <laughs> um and so suddenly I have lots of these like ocean marine biologists on my my Twitter feed and there was a <laughs> lot of chatter about this. I watched the trailer for it as well and that also got me up and was like, ooh, this seems, it feels like an action movie. And when you're pitching a documentary at me and it looks like an action movie, that makes me really worried about the quality of the information that I'll be receiving. So I held off on watching it, but then decided that there's so much talk going on around this. Number one, <laughs> let's take advantage of the fact that everyone's talking about it. Um, but then number two, also, it just thought that a lot of people in, in our sector, in our field, are going to be coming across people and they're going to have questions about it. And it's our job to, to communicate about it. That means we should see it and be be ready to have these conversations with the public. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we, we've all got these mixed senses about it. Let's start by talking about what we did like about this documentary, what we think it did really well. Um, so, Christina, let's start with you, maybe. I liked, so it took me to watch the whole documentary to actually extract what I liked, uh, because for me, it started in a way that wasn't engaging at all. And then I got really into it. Um, I was watching it with my partner and we were chatting, 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 and then we went quiet. I think it just shows some side of commercial fishing and what's happening in the oceans that people might not have heard about. Um, so I like that it hooks you with, you know, looking after dolphins, plastic problems, and then it goes into, but actually this is, an actual problem that people are not talking about um and you should know about this and you should know about um this side of commercial fishing and the plastic side of commercial fishing the biodiversity side of and conservational side of commercial fishing how laws around it and how protections and like seals of approval works i think that was really interesting and I think you could see the journey of of the of the director, the producer, um, going through all those all those sides. And you and, and what I really really like, and I think it, it was the best thing of the documentary, where most of the guests of the documentary, there were some people that were saying really interesting things. I think most of them were giving really good insight, and they were being really honest. 
about this issue. So yeah, it was kind of like, I think it's opening a door to people that might not consider this side of the, the, the problems in with the oceans. So I think if you take the documentary as a whole and you look at the, the narrator, I think what is really good about it is the fact that he made it. I, I make an assumption that he potentially doesn't have a background in science. I would assume maybe a bit more of a background in film production and that sort of thing. However, he was passionate about this subject that he decided he wanted to devote a lot of time and a lot of money into making something to communicate to other people um, about about this big issue that he saw. Um, and I thought that that was, that was really quite powerful. The fact that he, you know, cared enough about something potentially not from a science background um, to want to communicate about it. I also quite liked what he touched on quite early on, and I would have loved for him to have made even more of it, about that he he identified himself as previously part of the problem of like the plastic problem, the fishing problem. And he very much didn't hide away from the fact that in the past he he's done things that, you know, have led to damaging of the ocean in some way, shape or form. And throughout this, he was um, starting to improve his own practices. And I thought that that's a really nice narrative that's often lost with us identifying that we've done things wrong and maybe we're not perfect, but we can always, there's always the chance for improvement and learning more. And I thought that they were some of the quite nice themes that came out of it overall. I quite liked that it was, as as Christina, as you mentioned, it's kind of this distillation of a whole bunch of ecological concepts, like all condensed down into one. So what, like, it's a it's like a catalog of all the various issues that the oceans are facing. So it brings it all together into one piece. But I also liked the bits, particularly a lot of the animations where it was just kind of showing you, okay, this is the consequence for the ecosystem. Here's a visualization of it. And things like the image of the trawler net going along and it's scooping up fish. Here's an entire cathedral. Here's a bunch of jumbo jets. That's how big these nets are. Mm-hmm. Cause that's something where it is really hard to get your, your head around and, mm-hmm this documentary did a really good job of helping you to visualize how big the scale of some of these problems are. So I think in that way, the the production value was really good and and in a lot of ways added a lot to it and and did things that, again, other ocean documentaries um, haven't tended to to do so much. So it, it presents things to you in a very different light. I agree completely. And that's something that I, I noted is they made those really big abstract numbers wherever they came from as real relatable to your average human um, as they could. As I said, I was watching with my with my partner who hasn't got a background in science. He's the best test for these kind of things because you can tell whether he's been surprised about something or um, didn't know about something or something that they've heard of. And he was saying that the numbers, because there's a problem when the numbers, there's a point when the numbers... Um, they're showing a lot of numbers. And he was saying, I don't understand these numbers, I can't get them. And then it was the graphs that actually helped because you could visualize that. Um, And I think, yeah, absolutely. That was really, really important. Things we did not like about this documentary. And I think, uh, Christina, you already brought it up a little bit. So let's let's jump into that one. It's called Seaspiracy. So immediately you get the sense that this is going to give you things in a conspiracy framing. The full conspiracy theory part of it, it kind of builds until somewhere in the middle of the documentary, 
he presents that there's these huge problems, but no one's talking about it. So he says this quite a lot throughout the documentary, like, why is no one talking about this? Why aren't our conservation organizations? Why don't they have this issue on their websites? What's going on? Um, and my reaction to that was perhaps colored, maybe because I've been in the environment sector now for you know quite a few years. But people are talking about these things. None of these were new to me. However, granted, I hadn't heard very much about them in recent years. And I thought that this overall conspiracy framing was, um, I think, unhelpful. I think it draws you in, but I think it, it's damaging. So the kind of comments like, why is no one talking about this? Why hadn't I heard this before? I I felt similar to you, like, oh, I have heard this before. But then it made me kind of wonder, maybe I'm not the targeted demographic for this sort of slightly dramatized, quite suspension, action filling type of documentary. Um, and that actually, you know, I read articles, I work at a museum where we're discussing these sort of issues every day. And yeah, maybe just like you said, Victor, I'm, I'm, I'm not that sort of demographic, but maybe they're, you know, haven't heard about this. And maybe this will be the first time for a lot of people hearing about some of those issues. And in a way, it made me reflect slightly that when someone's telling you about something that's to them very bread and butter, to them very obvious, some people, some communicators can have a sort of like disregard for the fact that everyone knows that sort of thing. Like, obviously, you know that DNA is made up of this, that and the other. And someone's going, I, I didn't know that. And suddenly I am now completely barriered by that sort of comment. So it did kind of made me think, actually, by saying, why is nobody talking about that? It maybe does empower some people in a way that haven't heard about it, that this is a conversation that you can now join. Um, it's it's not an elite. You don't necessarily need to have known anything about this before. So, yeah, that, that made me think. I'm, I haven't quite decided whether or not um, which which side of the fence I sit on with that one. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with Rosie on that. When I started watching it, it was like, but but we are talking about it. We know about that. Why are you telling me that I don't know about that? You get a bit defensive. I think also because we work in a museum and we do talk about these things, that defensiveness goes up a level because you go, we're actually saying this. I'm new listening. But then you stop and go, okay, who are we telling these things from the museum? And why do I know these things? And you have to step back and be like, okay, there might be people that don't know that. So yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I've got problem though with the conspiracy theory um, context in which they make it because I think it can be contraproductive though in some way because I think we tend to think about conspiracy theories as something that is you know a conspiracy theory is something that might be true but sounds a bit weird is it true and it goes from you know mm, viruses created on a lab to not actually going to the moon like it ranges from many things so putting this like evidence that this is actually happened in the conspiracies bag, I think is quite dangerous because you're calling something that is, there is evidence that it's happening and it is true into the conspiracy thing. I know that the conspiracy comes from the other side, that why are government pr protecting these? Where is all this money going into fishing there? But you have to be careful because the same people that might not have not heard of these before might then go, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, so why would I believe it? Like, you know what I mean? So I think in the same way that in one way that demographic or even any demographic could be affected by, you've never heard of this before, 
the, the conspiracy side might be a bit problematic as well. I think it fixed it a bit at the at the end, and it's also a way of selling it. But I, I I felt that that was a little bit problematic. For me, the biggest problem with the conspiracy framing was that it really painted the conservation organizations that were featured in this really really negative light. Like yeah. the suggestion that was never really addressed Absolutely. was that basically they're all in the pocket of the fishing industry and that uh, because there's this the, it's the old adage of like follow the money right and like that's how you know but that that adage i think is not actually particularly helpful um because following the money gives you it points out where there could be problems but it doesn't tell you that there is a problem so a huge number, well, almost every charitable organization is funded by governments. They'll have industry partners that donate to them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a, it's a green washing or a whitewashing exercise for that organization. The work that these charities do, particularly in monitoring the fisheries, like they do really do this work and they have had an important impact. The fact that they get some of their funding through licensing of the um, the dolphin safe label or the MSC blue tick, like if they license that the use of that logo to a company because they've met certain standards, that the fact is that that company has met those standards, and the fact that they are getting money in from it doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. It's recognized that that can be a conflict of interest, and so organizations have things in place to to minimize that conflict of interest, right? So that money might go into a uh, a separate branch of the organization that's not directly related to the one that does the monitoring work, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree, Victor. I, I found that really disturbing how he, at some point, was trying to catch these organizations in the lie. And he's like, well, you're showing up to their offices and talking to the receptionists. Sometimes they won't know anything. Sometimes you're actually having an interview with somebody and asking them a question that they're like, well, I don't know how to answer that. You'll have to ask this other question, this other person. And sometimes it's more nuanced than this CEO of the company or this PR person of the company is going to have all the answers. Then they're not. And they they also, as you said, they're influenced by many different things and they actually have to look after themselves. Um, I think it's important to to bear that in mind when you're thinking about organization. They're doing as much as they can with the resources that they have and they they're going they're going somewhere little by little. I think there was um I think it was a dolphin safe uh, man who was being really honest. He was saying no we can't guarantee this and he kept trying to keep to catch him into saying that then why do you have the label? What are you doing? He's like, well we're trying to do as much as we can with the resources that we can. I think he was kind of like not saying it straightforward because obviously he can, but he was saying a straightforward look we're doing what we can, but we can't guarantee that. So like, then you make your own reflection after what I'm telling you from this position in which I'm trying to help. But obviously, I can't completely sort everything out. Yeah, I, I agreed. I thought it felt I felt quite uncomfortable at points, the way he was asking and pressing some of the sort of charitable organisations, the NGOs. And the the um, individual that you refer to, Christina, I, I felt like that as well. Like I was actually really shocked that he was being so honest that there was no way of guaranteeing that a certain type of tuna being caught that they said was dolphin safe was actually dolphin safe. And I was shocked to hear that. And I actually thought that that was quite a good revelation for me to have because previously I would have been like, oh yeah, it's got the MSC tick. Um, I think it was the MSC when we were talking about that point. Mm. It's got the MSC tick. We're fine. Good to go. 
And I thought it was really good that it now actually made me question, actually, what does that mean? And am I comfortable with that no guarantee? And I thought, unfortunately, rather than kind of like hammering home that point, what could have been opened up instead was a bit of a conversation about how do we make that guarantee better? I, I can see that yeah. you care and you're trying to do as much as you can. You're being as honest as you can. You clearly don't have a huge amount to hide here. But what is that step that charities like yours need to get that guarantee higher? Yeah. Where can we as consumers and individuals and voters support you on that? And I, I would have liked to see that slight strengthening of message between those. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he was saying it as well. He was saying sometimes the people who go on the votes get bribed to say that it's fine. He was saying it clearly is the money. We don't have money to actually certify this properly. So yeah, why didn't you go into that conversation? Why didn't you go into talking about, okay, can governments actually support these? Why do people that go on votes need to depend on bribes rather than actually having a salary that actually allows them to leave on this? It was a big conversation the saying, you are trying to make us think that you're doing things right, but you're actually not. It's like, well, actually, can we appreciate what these people are trying to do and where are the barriers that they are finding while trying to do that? Yeah, yeah. And there was no there was no talk about, as you mentioned, Rosie, like, how can we make this better? Like, how can we reduce this this problem of dolphin bycatch and bycatch generally even more than we currently are? And they only really talked about uh, in-person monitoring. They didn't talk about all the digital monitoring tools for, for monitoring fish or other technologies that have been put in place to reduce bycatch. Like there, there wasn't much conversation about that. And a lot of those methods have been quite effective at reducing it, not eliminating the problem. And I think, again, as you both mentioned, the interview with the person, um, he was very honest about not being able to give a guarantee, but I think that's also very realistic. So another issue with the conspiracy framing was this, again, back to his statement of why is no one talking about this? Why aren't these organizations talking about this? It gives the impression that there's some kind of effort at silencing certain messages. And I think that when you look at the information sources that he pops onto the screen, it feels like actually a big part of it is where you get the information from. So a lot of times what he was showing us were Twitter messages popping up on the screen. But when you think of Twitter, that's just giving you a snapshot of what is the conversation that's going on right now. And the conversation going on right now is about plastic pollution and plastic straws that came out of, you know, images um, from Blue Planet 2 and things like Wildlife Photographer of plastic pollution, that shot of um, the video of the the plastic straw coming out of the, the sea turtle, which was went around the world and really brought this issue to light. So that's that's just a snapshot in time. And if that's where you're getting your information from, then you're, if you don't look more broadly than that, you've lost out on the conversation that has gone on before. And I think that's a big problem in, in this film is the the kind of echo chamber bubble effect. You're seeing it in action. The other thing why these charities are focusing in on these particular issues that I think he misses out is the fact that charities are often desperate to get their message out there. And so they will latch on to what conversation is going on at the moment. And so if they, if we think that people are talking about plastic straws and single-use plastics, charities are going to latch on to that, just like I'm doing with Seaspiracy. We latch on to the conversation that's already going on out there and use it as a vehicle to get your message out there more generally. And I think, it's, again, something that he misses out on quite a lot. Also, like another 
important analysis that I think is is is, is key to make here is that you can actually swap a plastic straw for a metal straw. You can stop using bags and having fabric bags. But if you're actually asking the you know commercial fishing to stop fishing completely, that's really difficult because it's a whole industry, a whole industry that gets to the point that actually they they touch in the in the documentary of like slavery and illegal fishing in areas where people shouldn't be fishing. So it's, it's massive, it's massive. And there's so much behind it. So you have to actually look at these charities and be like, okay, they're actually going for the straws because they know that they're not going to have a massive backlash and yeah. they need to start somewhere. And then maybe starting talking about straws, take people to actually talk about fishing nets, which, you know, I found myself going into that ladder. Because when you start talking about people that know about plastics and tell you about that, microplastics as well. I would, there was a moment when they were like trying to nail somebody to say, oh, you talk about microplastics, but you not talk about nets. Loads of microplastics come from the nets. So they are talking about it, but it, you need to find a way of doing it. It's not as straightforward. And not everyone has Netflix backing you to actually do a documentary or do a campaign about this. It's also really important to bear in mind the privilege that this guy had to actually talk about it, which is brilliant and I'm really happy about. But then don't attack the people who are actually trying to do something or do it in a way that is a little bit more constructive. The part about plastic straws I really wanted to mention today because it I found it really useful watching it myself as a science communicator. Um, so our narrator says that I think he compares it to um, boycotting plastic straws for the ocean, it would be the same as boycotting toothpicks for the Amazon rainforest. Like they're actually the tip of the iceberg. Boycotting straws really isn't going to make much of a difference. And I was like screaming at the at the documentary in my head going, no, but that's the first step. Like that is such a small culture shock. That is going to change nobody's life. Nobody really on the whole needs a straw unless you have a sort of additional kind of reason to use one and even then the the alternative option than the plastic straws are really easy to come by that's not going to really change anyone's lives and that is that first step of the ladder gets that conversation going and it kind of annoyed me the fact that he was demonizing all of these campaigns about raising awareness of plastic straws because that's a simple thing for people to change. And just as you said, Christina, it makes that conversation and it's the conversations that make the further change. Nobody's going to just stop eating fish overnight if that's what they depend on, if that's what their livelihood is all about. But it's making those conversations start. And I found that really frustrating in the documentary, but I found it really useful for me because when I, in the future, try to communicate about these certain topics, I, I know the I now kind of realize the additional importance of that sort of anchoring message and, and, and the power of it to escalate as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to tie into those bigger issues. Yeah, those conversations have led to actual change, right, because they are so achievable. So plastic straw ban has dramatically reduced the use. I think um, ban on single use plastic bags in the UK has led to something like a 90 95% reduction in the use of it. And that's, that's something that, you know, the conversation happened, and then a change happened, right, because it was achievable. But to say like, right, we're going to ban the use of these large scale plastic fishing nets, where, where there's not a ready alternative for that, like that is a much more difficult change to get to. And if you're focusing solely on those things, you might never get anywhere because it's just too, it's too big. 
Also, you don't have to do everything all the time is something that I always try to get across. Like it, it's okay if you slip up now and again, it's okay to use a single use plastic now and again, if you can't, if you just can't avoid it. And in our society, it's really, really difficult to avoid it. So you're not going to completely eliminate that from your life. It's realistic to just acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to do that, right? And I think that's one of the problems of this kind of all or nothing framing that he really has. Doing this is like a drop of the water. So there's no point doing it. And it's like, no, actually, there is a point doing it because it does make some difference, maybe not a huge difference, but it's doing something. That's so, I totally agree with that. I think that was a message I got at the end of the documentary. It was like, well, what's the point? And it was like, because it it, it it kind of like drones you down. It, it gets you to, well, I can't support a charity because what's the point? I could stop eating fish, but what's the point? Because it's one person, I mean, they, they've got a slave in, a slave in a slave labor in Thailand. Is this going to affect that? It just gets you to, yeah, the ultimate message was stop eating fish. But in the meantime, it discarded so many other messages that could have actually made a point yeah. and mm-hmm. could have actually helped and be positive and and be beneficial and yeah i completely agree with with what you were saying victor absolutely one of the big problems uh throughout the whole documentary that i find is he really gets lost in he loses sight of the forest for the trees and the trees for the forest he doesn't link everything together really well so in that one interview where he's trying to pin down the person on the their stats on plastic pollution and like he's trying to argue that Plastic straws make up less than 0.1% of plastic pollution, but fishing nets makes up this huge percentage. And like, why are you talking about microplastics? And it's this real, like, are you talking about the number of items of plastic that's in the ocean? Are you talking about it by weight? But ultimately, I think for the everyday consumer, the nuances of that, it doesn't really matter. But he's really, he spends so much time pinning down that, trying to pin down that person on a specific stat. When it's like, it doesn't matter. The point is that plastic pollution is a problem. And we can tackle this from loads of different angles, from the consumer angle, from the fishing industry angle. We don't have to pick one. We can do more than one thing. I think if if you're making a documentary or any sort of kind of production communication about environmental issues you have to be really really careful and I think you have a responsibility to not just be total to doom and gloom and I think we kind of seen that in like the evolution of Attenborough documentaries on BBC as well there is a sweet spot where you go this is really really bad but I don't want to destroy your notion that we can do anything about it we can introduce some good stories here because that's how sort of humans work. We work towards positive things. We need to see encouragement that change is possible. And I think you have to be really, really careful to balance those messages carefully. Otherwise, just as you've both said, you really risk just switching the person off. I can't do anything. I'm just one person. So why should I even bother? And I, I, I worry that he was a bit too close to the line on that one. So I think the big problem that I really wanted to make sure to hit was the issue of privilege and particularly uh, a Western privilege that really comes across in this documentary. He grew up in the UK, he's British, and then he's basically traveling around the world poo-pooing the customs of all these various people. And that that's one aspect of the issue. And then his solution to it is also 
to just stop eating fish. And that is an action that again comes from a position of privilege. You know, you need to be able to stop yeah. doing it in order yeah. for that to be an action. And that's not an option for a lot of people who are out there. Yeah. But also, if you took that action, that has really disproportionate impact on some of the poorest communities yeah. in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's something that isn't addressed at all within within this documentary. And I think that's a real a real failing is that it doesn't take that global look. It's a, a purely affluent Western English speaking country perspective. And I think he could have done well to make that distinction. If he's saying, okay, I recommend that people stop eating fish, but I'm referring here to people like you who have the option because our lives are very different from those who, you know, depend on fishing because that's the only protein that's near them because they live on a tiny island. I, I, I think you're right, Victor, that it was a bit of a broad sweeping recommendation. Um, one that I think is is very tough to achieve as well. And I, there, there were points towards the beginning where I felt that it was quite good that he was bringing things back to the UK. There were the odd kind of things that he brought back to, this is our issue, we've got this on the beaches, etc. But I totally got that vibe as well. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, Victor, because it's, it's one of my main peeves when it comes to these, when it comes to things that we should be doing in, in the West. We've been privileged for a long time. We've been able to ex exploit those resources from those countries. And now we're asking them to stop doing the things that we've been doing for a long time because it's, be it's better for the planet, it's better for us as well. And I, and I find that when any, any conversation about me or plastics or, or um, fish comes in, this is something that I always feel really uncomfortable with. I think there was one point when he touches, um, when he's uh, in the coast of, was it Ethiopia or in, in the coast of Africa? And, and there are these massive fishing boats and there's more fishing boats. And it just barely touched it. And I wish he could have covered yeah. a little bit more because this is people that are actually leaving out of fishing but like a, a, a way that could call maybe sustainable fishing in a way. And I think there are many communities around the world that do sustainable fishing, that do fishing of even tuna, which was highly present in, in the in the show. There can be sustainable tuna fishing that has is done just one time a year because that's the time when, you know, I'm, I'm talking from Spain. In Spain, there's a big cult of eating tuna. And there is sustainable tuna fishing. And I think that happens in all the countries. Um, and that would have been the point that I would have focused on. Like, fishing can be sustainable. And you can reduce fishing without actually asking people to stop eating fishing completely. And actually blame the companies behind that massive fishing that is happening at the moment. And actually focus and give a few examples of, like, this is where you can go if you want to eat um, fish, fish sustainable. Or if you want to reduce it... And you can pay a bit more, which again, just, you know, it, it comes again to the privileged side of it. But yeah, I found it quite tricky. And, and the fact that he was attacking ONGs and things, and it only goes, he only goes to government once and not really to put them on the spot. And I wish he would have actually more conversation with people who actually do sustainable fishing and the small communities who rely on fishing and eat just enough fish so they can have that fish and not deplete it from the seas and then look at where the fish that we buy in supermarkets come from as well and how that is dangerous so yeah absolutely agree with that and yeah also talk about that that maybe you know it's better to have a label that in some way guarantees something than 
not having a label at all because some people might only have access to tuna through tuna cans because they might not be able to afford going to the fishmongers and ask the fishmonger where is this coming from and paying I don't know ten pounds for a two fillets of tuna that then they can buy four cans for two pounds or three pounds and actually have that in the diet so yeah it's sorry I get a bit winded up because there's a lot to unpack in there and a lot to consider and make all these topics really nuanced but it's important to talk about that it's important to bring this up and this is this is the whole point of the environmental justice movement is like we need to look at environmentalism through this lens of social justice and acknowledge that not everyone has the same ability to make the same kinds of choices right and also the choices that those of us who are privileged enough to be able to cut certain things out of our diet to stop buying certain things that that impact is not evenly spread right so so i mentioned earlier that you know fishing communities are some of the poorest communities that we have even here within the uk even within very affluent countries like the united states and across europe fishing is it doesn't make them rich by and large um a stat that i came across that this is an issue that i had with one of the comments that George Mombio makes within the, the documentary, he brings up that in our collective psyche, our image of a fisherman is this sea captain on this little fishing boat bobbing along on the ocean. And then he points out that actually most of the fishing happens in these huge commercial trawlers. And he doesn't pick that apart. So most of the world's fish in terms of like mass and numbers is caught by these huge, massive industrial commercial trawlers. However, 90% of the people who work in fishing are small fishers. They are those little people bobbing along in the boats on the ocean. Like that is most of the people who work in fishing make their livelihood out of fishing. And so if you say, right, I'm going to cut fish out of my diet, that is going to take away income mostly from those smaller fishermen. That's not going to make a dent into the big commercial fisheries. The other aspect also, this is again, the kind of losing sight of the um, forest versus the trees and, and the problem with not looking at the nuances of the argument is the fact that most of the fish that's caught in the world doesn't go directly to human consumption. It gets used as animal feed or additives to other things. So cutting fish from your diet doesn't mean that you've stopped supporting commercial fisheries because that the like fish meal goes into uh, animal feed as a supplement. So if you're still eating meat products that still contributes to the fish problem or the, the fisheries kind of sustainable management problem potentially. But even if you cut animals out of your diet altogether and go completely vegan, fish meal is a common um, agricultural yeah. fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's an organic one because it's just like ground up plants and animals, but it's, it's, if you want to go organic, you're not going to have the chemical fertilizers. You're going to use organic means. And one of the organic means of fertilizing a field is fish meal. Mm -hmm. You know, th it's important to discuss all these problems and yeah. to, to bring that up because that's something that's completely missed out from it. And then, when you look at the problem from that scale, then you see that oh, this isn't really a an individual consumer problem in a lot of ways in terms of I'm going to make a difference by buying it. The, uh, a, a thing that was completely left out was like, no, you need to be talking to your elected officials about the fact that you're concerned about this so that they can start regulating it because that's where you're going to make the big, you know, the big, big changes in these systemic issues, you know 
because of how integrated fishing is into the overall food supply thing. Because you need to eat, you need to buy your food somehow. And unless you are growing your food entirely yourself or you're buying it from the farmer down the road that you know what they're putting on their fields, there's not a way to extricate yourself Mm -hmm. from it. So that's where, yes, you can make individual consumer choices by choosing to stop eating um, unsustainable fish, but you need to also approach it from, again, the the extra angle of talking to your elected officials about the concerns, pushing them to push for regulation. I felt like the, the documentary touched on that a tiny bit when they said that even if you don't eat fish, you still are subsidizing it from the money that you pay in tax. Um, and I really hope that I, I haven't seen any other work by the producer of that documentary, but I really hope that in like releasing that and sort of seeing the conversations that have formed around it since, I have no doubt they had very much the best interests of like trying to like guide the viewers into like the right path into helping the ocean. But I really hope like if he was to do it again, he might be like, okay, that fish or no fish narrative is not going to be the most successful one. Instead, I would like to explore this, that or the other. Um, because I, I take my hat off to him for him trying. Um, there's a lot, like, I, I almost see that as the kind of thing that he's like, I can do this. This is within my power because I can produce this video to tell people about it. Um, so, like, hat off to him completely for trying to get that message out there, um, even though it, it, it didn't necessarily tickle the boxes of the best communication of tricky topics. I think this is a good point to move into how we might make use of this film because I don't I don't like chucking out the baby with the bat flood or that kind of thing. I always want to see, right, what can I learn from something? Uh, how can this be useful? Did either of you have any thoughts on how this documentary might be useful for environmental education, uh, improving science communication, that kind of thing? Well, first of all, people are talking about it, aren't they? And I think that's important. At least it's starting the conversation. And then we come into play as communicators, educators, to then drive that conversation and direct it in, you know, the right direction. Okay, you you got a bit sad about this. You don't know what to do. Let's let's unpack it. Let's unpack it and let's see what we can actually do. And let's talk about all these things that we're talking now. I think. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the thoughts that I had is that this is a really good starting point. So if you're a teacher and you're, you know, your class has seen this and they want to talk about it, this is an opportunity to do things on uh, around media literacy or fact checking. Or even if you're like in a media studies class, you can look at it in terms of just as you said, how do I feel about this? And you can do it from a film studies analysis thing. How is this documentary making me feel this way? But then also, what is it trying to achieve by making me feel in this way? So I thought it was it's quite useful for that because it is very, it's not very subtle. 
<laughs> in in the way it uses imagery, music, the way in which he communicates, and so in that way, it, it's a good thing to analyze from um, from that sense. Yeah, I think it's it's useful in the sense that it is quite emotive, um, and for someone who has is unaware of these sort of issues, I imagine if they saw it, those sort of emotive images and stories would register with them on a memorable level it's not just facts and figures anymore it's not just data and reports from scientists this is something that even without volume on you will see and you go oh god that's awful um and I think it's those sort of memories that stick with people I hope it didn't go too far in that um but I would say that that is useful in a sense and personally for me I definitely did kind of take solace in the fact that a blue tick or the kind of sustainable logo was, you know, the bee's knees. And I, I personally don't eat fish, but I would always tell people, oh, the MSC, yep, go and buy that. And I'm not saying I wouldn't do that anymore, but it totally woke me up that I had no idea what that meant. And I found that quite a useful thing for me to go away and learn a bit more about what those things do mean, what sustainability does mean to various different people organizations and um, companies and just on a personal level I find that quite useful to kind of wake me up um, and and reconsider that. Yeah certainly it encouraged me to dig deeper into what does that labeling mean and there there is so again this is kind of the problem with just looking for for a really short form thing like just looking at a logo and seeing what that means because the MSC, I think it's the MSC, but the other thing that they do is you can just go to their website or use their app and look up the species that you're considering. And it gives you information about, uh, at least within the UK, if you're buying a certain species of fish, where is it most likely being caught? What is the most likely fishing method that's used there? What's the status of that fishery? So you can make a significantly more informed choice. And from that, there were some things, uh, the last time I, I did that, I was looking at it and um, there were some of the things that it was saying were sustainable, but when I read in on the details of it, there were still practices that I wasn't super happy with. I I saw that, okay, yes, this is just barely at a healthy level, so I'm going to avoid eating this. Now that I have this extra piece of information, it you know it fits the criteria of sustainable that they've set out, but because they give me the extra level of information, I can say that this is not sustainable enough for me to choose to buy it and so there is an extra level of information that you can dig into absolutely yeah and that's where i think another level that this is uh, quite useful for is as a fact checking ex exercise because it gives you a lot of facts and figures and um, because there's been so much talk around it and backlash to it from conservation and marine uh, sciences a lot of that fact checking is kind of done for you <laughs> so if you are, again, a teacher who's wanting to use this documentary in a class, it's easy for students to go to reputable sources, you know, like some of the scientists that are cited within the documentary, they have put out their own responses to it saying, no, I've got updated research, or that mischaracterizes my research, or there's a bigger picture out here. But again, reputable places have put together that information and put it out there. So um, it's not too daunting to fact check this film to find out where the information came from and is there more up-to-date information 
I also thought just a, a small snippet of that documentary towards the end could be really useful in kind of like considering debates and point of view. The end of the documentary, I think we go to the Faroe Islands where there is a type of inverted commas sustainable whaling. Um, and we see kind of like really emotive images, really quite powerful. It's horrible. There's blood, there's squeaking noises, there's commotion, it's chaos. And I don't know about you both, but me as a viewer, I was thinking there is no way that what I'm seeing right now is okay. But then almost immediately we go and speak to one of the whalers and they have a really interesting point of view that they say, well, you know, killing one whale is the same as killing 2000 chickens. And almost immediately having heard their reasoning, although I still didn't like what I was seeing and I don't like that that happens, it gave me a very different perspective. And I thought that that was a really nice kind of illustration of how things can be portrayed so vividly in one sense without the full story. I could almost imagine classrooms having debates on the different sides of that. That That is a moment also that's really useful for if you're thinking about media literacy, looking at what is the relationships of power that's going on in this in this documentary who is getting to speak who is not getting to speak and throughout most of it the people who are actually in the fishing industry working in the um fishing industry being affected by it they're not given voice it's it's ali's perspective so he's talking you know he's putting his values and perspective on what he sees happening he doesn't ask the people who are actually involved in it by and large but you get that in that last bit from from the Faroe Islands. And again, it's something that I wish that he had actually gone into fishing communities and talked to them about how have you as a small fisherman, how have you been affected by big commercial fisheries? Talk to people who work in big commercial fisheries. You know, What do you think about your own practices? Those kinds of conversations by and large don't really happen. Um, and you know, what might the documentary look like if those perspectives, if, if he asked for those perspectives, or if he, maybe he did, if he presented them in the final documentary. And so I thought it might be a, another useful exercise for this would be to um, watch this documentary alongside other ones and compare them, look at how or what messages are coming across, how is the messages being communicated. So, I mean, Blue Planet 2 is, is a really striking comparison within this. And um I, I went just before recording this and sort of skimmed through the last episode of that series. And it is just a, it's a cataloging. It goes through and it does talk about commercial fishing right at the beginning. Um, but the difference in how it presents it is it doesn't just present you with problems. It also presents you with hope and solutions. And that's something that you've mentioned a couple times in this, Rosie. And I think that is really, really important, the difference between how you can present your messages there's fairly consistent results in behavior sciences that if you present people with too many problems, they really do tend to shut down because they see the problem as too big. Yeah, yeah. But if you give people hope and a sense of agency, like, okay, I can do something. And also more importantly, that other people are also doing things, you know, you're more likely to actually take action yourself. And that's something that that Blue Planet does really well, that Seaspiracy does really poorly because Blue Planet really, it highlights, pro well, First off, it connects you with the animals and the ecosystems that you're seeing. So you really build up that sense of, wow, these are amazing creatures with amazing lives that do amazing things. Cetaceans are amazingly intelligent. They have these complex social lives. So it connects you with it. Then it presents you with the problems that these animals are facing. And then it presents you with 
these are people who are taking action on those problems right now. And you leave that feeling a sense of, yes, there are big problems, but there is hope. Things can be done. And I don't think Seaspiracy leaves you with that feeling. Right at the end, they do kind of touch on, I wrote down a phrase like, it isn't too late. They do have that kind of in there. But I think by that point, I was so overcome with just a lot of the negativity of it. And this idea like, wow, is that all humanity can do right now is just stop Mm -hmm. eating all animal products? Is that, and I was like, is that really what we need to do? That, That message was kind of lost on me. It was in there, very, very small. And it's funny because, as you said, Rosie, you you don't eat fish already, so you're already doing something, and then that message got lost. It it, it just it sounds that it, it, yeah, it. I think you have to find that sweet point between Blue Planet and saying that other people are doing this, so you feel like, well, they don't have to do anything. Then all oh, there's nothing I can do. Some people are already dealing with it. To the only thing that you can do is this, which is actually really difficult. And it might not solve the whole thing because it's labor, it's labor ships in the middle of the ocean. So it's just like that middle ground. How do you keep it? And I think there is where the teachers, educators come into play. They yeah. are the ones that need to drive that. They are the ones who have to extract the nuances. They are the ones who have to actually find that balance between the two and actually empower people to little by little stopping using the straws to stopping eating fish and actually considering what is all around that. Have either of you had a chance to um, ever hear Carolyn Hickman talk about climate anxiety? No. No. So she she's a psychologist and she really focused in the last few years on this phenomenon of climate anxiety, which is something that's increasingly coming up where kids are being overcome with anxiety that there are these huge ecological problems and they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And so she's been looking at this phenomenon, and I think you can apply it in in this context as well as kind of a broader ecological anxiety. Mm-hmm. And when she asks kids, like, what do you want? How can we deal with this problem? Um, and what the kids tell her is, is that, no, you need to tell me the truth, but don't tell us it all at once, you know, because then it's too sad and it's it makes me too frightened and worried. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit. And then, you know, give me some of the bad stuff, but then tell me some of the good stuff and then tell me some of the bad stuff and then tell me some of the good stuff. And that's like, and that's things that these kids have told her. And that seems super practical, you know, is, is you do have to hit that balance and it doesn't mean you're sugarcoating things. And I think that that can be a valid criticism of, of Blue Planet that it, it paints, uh, perhaps an overly rosy picture, maybe, um, but at least it is giving you that sense of hope and then peppers in the problems as well. In the same way, you don't want to sugarcoat everything. You don't want to make everything sound super awful because it's it's not that way. These The NGOs that uh, are featured in Seaspiracy, they are doing good work and it is making a difference. And the sense that I got from rewatching that last bit of Blue Planet was there's huge problems out there, but there's lots of people who are taking action on it how can I fit into this picture as well? I think it's easier to see that because then suddenly you become part of a community all working together towards something, not just the lone warrior out there. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this. Did did either of you have any other final thoughts about the film, final takeaways? I would just say, if you, if anyone listening to this is thinking about watching it and they are feeling like Rosie and I were feeling at the beginning before we watch it, I think just go and watch it. 
and just try to reflect about it and maybe watch it with a person that comes from you know have a different background to yours or have different studies or think differently and then have a conversation with them having this conversation with you two has been I mean we we have very similar backgrounds I think in, in many ways but having this conversation with you has been it's been great it's just actually made me think about about the documentary and what the documentary talks about. Yeah, I hope that the kind of backlash that this has received doesn't prevent other people from putting out their own kind of thoughts and feelings, documentaries or blogs or whatever about it, because I, I can imagine a lot of people might go, oh, wow, that that went down a bit scarily. I don't want that sort of mess at my doorstep. But I, I really do respect the fact that People are trying to do things. They might not necessarily do them in the most perfect way. I very much believe that whilst there might have been some financial motive in making this film, the the makers of it really did want to make a difference. And I think that's really, really important. I think that should be celebrated. And I really hope that other people who want to make sim- similar things to empower other people and inform other people don't get put off by doing so because their science might not be quite perfect or whatever. Um, but maybe bearing in mind that that sort of balance between doom, doom and gloom, practical, positive solutions um, and helping the audience on that journey. If you're listening to this and you're interested in finding about a bit more about this documentary, if you do want a bit more of that fact-checking background information side of it, uh, I'll put a link to a few other really good, useful resources that I've come across. So you can find those in the show notes which are always put up on the website at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And uh, all that's left to say is thank you very much, Rosie and Christina, for joining me on the show once again. It's been really great to have you here. Thank you so much, Victor. Thank you. so nice to be here with Rosie. Yeah, thank you both. And thank you all for listening. I'll catch you next time. 